Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Alex Mifsud, the co-founder and CEO of Weaver. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's it's really a pleasure and uh, and uh, a testament or uh, for our perseverance because we have tried to record this podcast for a for a very long time, but we we never give up and we are we are doing this uh, now. But for from the ones for the ones who didn't have the opportunity yet to to meet you before, uh, who is Alex? Well, where, where do I start? Um, <laughs> I, I guess uh, the last uh, 20 hours of my life has been building businesses, mostly in financial services and payments. Um, you know, but, but before then, I spent quite a bit of time uh, working as an academic. Uh, I'm a computer scientist originally, well, an engineer and then a computer scientist. Um, I really enjoyed time in academia where, you know, you're, you're really spending a lot of your time thinking about what's possible, mm -hmm. how to make things work. Um, really also interacting with uh, with some great minds, uh, established minds, but also minds in formation. I think that transition to me was uh, painful, but also really exciting from being an academic, thinking about you know how to come up with new concepts, how to make them work. And then eventually, how do they actually affect people's lives, right? Uh, so that's been that's been kind of my my transition, if you like. Right. And uh, and for the ones who are just getting to know more about your background, would think that you have always been related to academia and you are starting your first company, but but that's not the case. This is your your third uh, company. How, how has been your journey so far with the previous companies, and uh, and how did you went? Uh, building Weaver and starting a Weaver. Yeah, uh, I, look, my, my first experience of building companies was in the early noughties. Um, I I had some ideas that actually came from my research work um, with some of some with some of my students, and uh, and of course the original idea never quite made it to to become the business. But uh, but the first business ended up actually creating um, the world's first virtual prepaid card business called Entropay. And, uh, you know, at that point, I, I think I was a I was a decent technologist, but I was certainly a bad business person. And uh, I made all the, you know, all the rookie mistakes <laughs> of building a business, <laughs> thinking that, you know, clever tech is enough, um, thinking that, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, just ignoring the risks generally, you know, yeah. I first experiences with payments were having having the big lesson of, of fraud, right? Mm -hmm. You think everything's working brilliantly. You see all those nice curves going up, uh, and then you realize you have a fraud problem, and that fraud problem is going to kill you, basically. Right. <laughs> so, so you know that's uh, that that I think the early sort of years was almost almost like a like a learning ground. Um, it was I didn't go to business school. I went straight from being an academic. Uh, well, I spent a year and a bit in consulting as a transition. But mm -hmm. then, really, I started trying to build build a business. It, it was it was a learning ground for me, uh, and it took longer. But at, at the same time, we made it work. So Entropay had customers from over a hundred countries around the world, 
And eventually we, we, we learned how to run it extremely efficiently using machine learning to manage fraud. And, and that, that, that business effectively was not really a venture-backed business in any sense, but really taught me about how to solve not just technical problems, but how to communicate value, how to, how to do commercial deals, how to run marketing programs. Uh, and that's what I took into into the sort of my next business, which uh, a business called Exaris, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, which I sold in in uh, in 2021 uh, to Neum, um, and and that business took a lot of what uh, what was learned from Entropay. Actually, it was also to an extent based on virtual cars or virtual payments, but targeted B two B. Actually, it targeted mostly large businesses, multinationals, paying suppliers. Um, in the mostly in the travel industry, but not exclusively. And, and ultimately, that uh, the footprint of that business grew to 60 markets, you know, processing in the billions of dollars well, worth then. of transaction volume. Um, and I think that's when, that's when I sort of started to see the pattern around pro what product market fit looks like. And the Entrobay business, product market fit, was very surprising for me that when it happened, and suddenly this growth started to happen, and I just couldn't figure out why. What had changed? And uh, you know, in retrospect, it was finding product market fit. In the Exaris business, I went set out looking for product market fit, uh -huh. and uh, having tried to uh, really try to uh, apply virtual cars in a whole range of sectors. What I remember this one time when we looked at all the different use cases: payroll, um, you know, insurance payouts, uh, travel payments. There, there was like sort of five, sort of five categories. And travel was about five times all the others combined in terms of volume. Got it. And I didn't know why. You know, I went to speak to customers. So I really understand why they're using these things. And my assumptions were, were completely incorrect at the time. When I realized what it was, we then started making the product really work for that particular use case. And we got that exponential growth. Of course, the pandemic then uh, changed the trajectory a little bit, right? But uh, mm -hmm. But certainly, the underlying the, the underlying fundamentals were there, and still continue to be there for um, yeah. For the it came back. And it's growing even more now. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, absolutely. That is great, and, and it's incredible what you were uh, talking about. That you went from a technologist that didn't know too much about business. You have learned your way, and then you were able to create a, a success case before starting uh, Weaver, and, and and of course now you are in a great journey with Weaver and it's curious to see that now you are uh, much more you you also have a CTO uh, in in the business so you are not one of those technologies that would say I don't need a CTO I can be the CEO and the CTO and and sometimes I'm I'm joking but I I still see some of this happening uh, nowadays in in companies because the being the CEO, also having the techno technological background, sometimes there is the, the temptation of, yes, I will accumulate both roles, the CEO and the CTO role, especially in the in the first year. But uh, it seems that you were quite clear about, I will be the CEO and I need to have a CTO uh, at my side. There's actually, a, um, there's more to that than, than uh, what you're saying is absolutely right, but there's a little bit more in our case. Uh, my co-founder, Adrian, Actually, I've worked with him uh, in the Entropy business. I think he was employee number four in that business. Oh, great story. And, and, and then he worked um, as CTO at Exaris, uh, my second business. Uh -huh. uh, and he left to do a PhD. So he left when, when the business started actually growing. 
Uh, it's actually at that point that, that that he left to do a PhD, and he finished his PhD um, in in 2019, and just at the time when I was thinking about setting up Weaver, and I was really worried, you know, because I was thinking here's a really complex technological journey that we need to go through, but at the same time, you know, there's a very embryonic market. You can't sort of just slot into existing demand. How am I going to make this work? And Adrian was was like the perfect co-founder I could have thought about. And, uh, you know, I called him and he he very quickly said yes, actually. And so I, I feel really lucky to to have had that privilege. That is definitely uh, important to know. I'm just thinking about uh, raising a pre-seed with, with previous experience in the industry, in, in the space, and with a team that has been working together uh, in the last two ventures and is going for for the third venture uh, and very with with a very strong technological background and r&d background uh, and uh, that that helps in terms of raising your your initial rounds right it it absolutely does um having having said that you still need to shape your ideas right and in fact, Adrian and I, when we decided to do it, we're sort of almost decided we're definitely going to go for it and, and uh, you know, and, and make this work. So we decided as a kind of test to ourselves to enter a pitch competition. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we did. So, and we won the pitch competition, which uh, gave us our first 20 grand. Uh, so, yeah, which is nice because it's a grant, right? It was a grant Absolutely. and, uh, and uh, there was no sort of equity involved at that point. Yeah. And and that just gave us. I mean, we would have done it anyway, but that just gave us the sort of sense that you know we get it. We, we're we're keeping ourselves honest. We're having to sing for our supper. You know, we're having to really sort of uh, articulate the value rather than just trade on the fact that we're you know we've been experienced at business building before. Right, and uh, and there is also something interesting that we will get there, which you were also able to to raise with the Horizon 2020 program, which is quite complex to to get in. Uh, but but before that, let's get into 2018, uh, December of 2018, when you decided to start uh, Weaver. So what what was Weaver yes. about and uh, what is Weaver? Well, Horizon 2020 is intimately connected with that point because yeah. The original project was actually done um, through a Horizon 2020 grant yeah. uh, within the Exaris uh, business. So uh, Weaver didn't exist there, uh, you know, at that point. Exaris really wanted to try and think about the next generation platform, mm -hmm. and we had a ton of ideas. And I remember the engineers telling me, Alex, if you want to make these ideas happen, these are not not incremental things. These are quite radically different in the way we've been. Building our technology, you know, give us a year to do nothing else but build this platform. If you really wanted to do it on these sort of quite radical, um, you know, radical departures from the way the original Exaris uh, platform was built, and I said, "Careful what you wish for," and and I actually um, really drove this uh, this Horizon 2020 um, bid. I put a consortium together. You know, Visa was part of that consortium, amongst uh, others. Mm -hmm. And and basically we got the grant, you know, we got a, a two and a half million euro grant for a four million euro project. And I got 25 engineers working for two years to, to build this operating system for uh, embedded, originally embedded payments. 
How and, many engineers, uh, Alex? Sorry. Uh, well, at, at the peak point, there were 25 engineers 25. working. Wow. Uh, working on the project, including support from Visa's uh, technical architects. Um, Amazing. You know, we had lawyers really tell us what whether what, whether something would make sense within the, the current uh, and the emerging regulation. What very exciting kind of intellectually rich uh, project. And when we finished it, we had to sort of, you know, by the time we finished it, Exaris had product market fit in the travel sector. It was doubling every every sort of nine months. In, in terms of uh, volume and revenue. And the board said, well, do we really want to transition to some completely new sort of rev- radically different platform? Right. And I said, you know, at that time, I said, well, it probably doesn't make sense, but this is so, this is so, such a good sort of piece of technology. Um, and I know the market isn't quite there yet, but it will, it will happen. Uh-huh. And I made an offer to the shareholders to actually, um, Take the uh, take the IP out um, of uh, of the Xaris business, and that's been the genesis of the Weaver um, of the Weaver technology. Amazing! So the, the, it's it's a it's really an amazing story, and and then you decided to to focus on on Weaver and uh, and the project was so what 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 is Weaver today for, for the ones? Yes. Um, so look, t- uh, December t- uh, twenty eighteen was simply when we set up a vehicle to take the IP. Right. There was no. There, there was no team. You started there was no the operation. It was literally okay. So now do what do we do? We own the IP. We have no money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have no, no staff. We have, um, and uh, and throughout 2019, it was very much in the garage, you know, deciding which bits of the code. This Remember, this was a research project, right? With many hands who have been involved in this. Even the sheer size of the code base was, was daunting. So we spent all of 2019 heads down, stealth mode, really... Um, cleaning out the code, trying to actually reduce the size of the code we would go live with, and shaping a product out of that uh, technology mm-hmm. stack. And then in uh, in 2020 when, is when we really started seriously thinking about fundraising. And of course, the moment we were ready, we had a business plan, we started to go and reach out to investors in, in the beginning of 2020, and the pandemic hit. It was, right. like, it was like a huge psychological blow for us, because... At that point, we're just about ready to launch in beta, to start getting customers, to then get investors on board. You know, we're still on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and suddenly, it's an, we're unable to use all the things we've learned about pitching to investors, about, you know, going out there, doing demos, hustling with customers, and so on. Right. But in fact, the world quickly adapted. You know, what was what's amazing is that in the first three months of the pandemic, the world went, went the, the digital world went from being completely in a panic to this is a new opportunity for digital like we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in, in, uh, in July of that year, in July 2020, we launched our beta. And in November 2020, we launched our service. And uh, we, we, we raised uh, $4 million before we, um, in, in September of that year, to actually be able to fund the, um, you know, the the, the launch uh, ultimately of the business, so we, we we like to think of Weaver as having really started in the pandemic, um, and and launching publicly in, in November 2020. You kind of were able to have that uh, grant in the pitch competition after you decide to create the legal entity and. Uh... 
and leave the Horizon 2020 or as a consequence of the Horizon 2020 uh, project, right? So I think that you were even able to raise the pre-seed round in, in 2019 and then 2020, the, the, the seed round. Uh, That's right. Right. And, and, and after that, you even extended your uh, seed round in in 21 with uh, with headline right? that's an interesting story because headline had been you know we we had to really uh decide how much to how much of a size of seed round we, we raise and we felt we didn't want to raise too much um at the, at the time obviously not to give up too much equity but also not to not to get lost right because i think you need to be, you need to really remain focused as, as a founder and especially at the early stage of the business yeah. But what we found is that in the first quarter of 2021, we we were staggered by the amount of demand in the market. And we, we, it caught us by surprise. We were sort of saying, well, it's going to take a while for the market to happen, you know. And we we did the first half year's target by the end of February, early March. Wow. And then we realized we have a problem here because how are we going to implement and support these deals? Like at that point, we're still sort of, you know, five, six, seven people in the business. Um, the, we have to build an organization that supports these live deals. And we, we did some maps and we realized if we did that, we would really start to run out of money quite quickly. And you don't want to raise when you're going to run out of money, obviously. Right. Uh, and the board said, you know, our board said, Basically, oh, don't worry, you know, we'll, we'll put in uh, a couple of million extra to give you that headroom. <laughs> um, I decided, I mean, you know what, let's let's go and have that conversation again with all the investors we said no to in uh, in, in September. And, uh, and, you know, we actually only spoke to five investors outside our cap table. Uh, and we got offers. We didn't get offers from all five. We got offers from four. Um, and then, and and we we loved we loved sort of uh, headline. Actually, Michael Michael Kent, who is the venture partner at Headline, you know, I was really, I you know, I, I was sorry we didn't take their money because he's he's such he's such a great guy in terms of his experience in fintech and just mm -hmm. inc incredibly helpful. So uh, we put that right in in May of uh, 2021. That, that is quite amazing. So you said no to some people in your initial round of uh, uh, in, in your initial seed round in in twenty twenty, and and after that you decided to come back to to those people when when your board and your portfolio of investors uh, offered you to kind of extend or do a bridge round uh, at seeds, and uh, you were able to talk with the with the ones uh, that you decided to say no to, <laughs> and. And uh, and you were able to raise another uh, seven million uh, pounds or or dollars, right? Uh, namely, with uh, with Michael Kent from from Headline. So uh, amazing story. Just highlighting how how amazing it is, and especially and that is the point of some of the best companies, right? It's it's the the option to to select your investors. It's much better to be in that position than just begging for an investor to invest uh, in your venture when you are in a position that you are able to choose who you want to partner with. Uh, that That is definitely a, a great spot or a great seat to be. I, I think I think there is a, I think it's a, it's a really good objective test of whether what you're doing is right to, to try to have choice. Because if you're desperate to get an investor over the line, Exactly. And you might just find one that is willing to do it. 
it's probably should be telling you something, right? You're either so far ahead of the market that only you get it and maybe a very, very tiny minority of people. Exactly. Or else you probably haven't quite dealt with all the angles. Because if you have and you've got something good, you should basically be able to be in a position to choose the yep. you know, how you assemble your cap table. Absolutely. Um, and and after that, uh, you in February of 2022, uh, you raised a 40 million dollar uh, A round with with Tiger uh, Global Management, right? So, how has been the evolution from this second uh, seed round uh, that was uh, higher than the the initial <laughs> seed round four to seven, and now the the 40 million uh, round? Yes. Um, to be to be fair, I, you know, I wasn't sure we should raise in again in twenty, you know, in really twenty twenty one, and I thought, you know, one good way to really figure out the trajectory of this embedded finance business. I mean, embedded finance started to be talked about. If you look at if you do a Google Trends search. And you see the mentions of embedded finance. You can see the hockey stick, right? I mean, in in, in sentiment. Got it. And and I really just wanted to see whether where the investment community was. And uh, I remember going to Money Twenty Twenty in in Amsterdam, in in October um, twenty twenty one uh, or September it was. I can't remember which month, but the, the, uh, that sort of time. And my my objective was very much to see whether our pitch was resonating, whether and whether. You know, there, there is investment interest. The, my anticipation was, you know, we'll close the year and then we'll start raising in 2022 and middle of 2022, we would basically, you know, do our Series A. But um, one, I, you know, I saw a lot of interest and it started to feel like, you know, here there is um, basically, this is the moment when everybody's so excited by this sector. Now is probably a good time to raise. And actually, Tiger was Tiger was just amazing. You know that they, they the moment we had the conversation with them, actually they reached out to us to be introduced to us at the same time as we asked for contacts to reach out to them. It was like in wow. that week, <laughs> um, you know, I got a moment. Did I call you or did you call me? Type of moment. <laughs> um, and they were, yeah, you know, they were very fast. In fact, we asked them to wait until we let the other investors catch up in terms of giving us term sheets. Again, we were oversubscribed. We originally wanted, were going to raise $20 million, but we ended up being very, very oversubscribed. I mean, multiple times. So we ended up you know, nudging it up and up and up, and then we decided to stop at, uh, at $40 million. Um, I was I was trying to get it done by Christmas. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a funny story here where my, one of my investors was saying, Alex, why are you so fixated on just having to get this done? I said, look, I don't take things for granted. I don't, you know, once you're in that period when you've agreed terms with an investor, you want to get it all, all sorted. Right. And I made, I suggested, I said, you know, you never know what's around the corner. I said, maybe Putin will, you know, will, 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 will invade Ukraine. And, and then the world economy will change. And, 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 you know, it was a bit of a joke at the board, this one. Uh, in fact, um, in fact, this was uh, uh, Yusuf, um, Ozalga, who's a, a partner at QED. 
And I think he, he put out a survey uh, about what's in store for 2022. Right. And I think one of the options was, you know, um, you know, the war will uh, will strike out in Europe or some something to that effect. And he did it. He said he did it as a as a sort of joke to, because of my paranoia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the thing is, the point is, you don't, you really can't take things for granted. Um, when when something is happening, you act. You don't wait to see how it plays out because the world is volatile, right? And if you don't make your own weather, then you are having to be a taker of of the of the environment you you find yourself in. Now, if you find yourself in an environment, you do your best. But when when you're at a point when the alignment is right, you act. You don't sit, you don't stop to think about things. That's a good important tool to manage that pressure and 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 the timing. Uh, the timing is really important uh, if you are not able to close uh, a deal. And and this also works with on the customer side. If if you are not able to progress fast at, at the right timing, maybe. A little bit later will not be uh, anymore the the right timing to to proceed right so this sense of urgency i would say maybe that's that's the best expression is really important as a founder and also as you said and um, and uh, there is a an, the founder of intel uh what who is the name uh andy grove uh what it, always uh, i like it to talk about is to be paranoid uh, as a founder, it's it's important. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the the point is, you, you know, you, you have got to balance two things. One is being optimistic, thinking yeah. about all the wonderful possibilities that the future holds. Right. But at the same if time, not, you don't got, start the company. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you know, you need a drive. You need something to to drive towards. But at the same time, you also have to realize there is so much risk that is going to get in your way. And it's the unknown unknowns that get you, right? It's the, it's the surprises that you're not prepared for. So I think that's, having that sort of healthy healthy sort of dose of paranoia at, uh, at your side is, yeah. uh, is, a, is pretty useful, not just the vision and the drive to, to, um, and the optimism. Yeah, and and you you told me when we were preparing this session that you were also um, invested by the United Arab Emirates sovereign fund. So how did you went spark sparking the interest of uh, of this fund? Yes, this is Mubadala, um, uh, uh, and uh, you know they they are they they are a fund that is I think amazingly forward looking and they invest in, in they invest thematically they they have uh, you know they invest at multiple stages i think we're probably at the earliest stage uh, that they would would invest in but we were when we were trying to think about the kind of ideal cap table we always had in mind um two criteria besides having investors we like you know that have a good mm -hmm. reputation we also also had two sort of uh, aspects that we was in our wish list one is that mm -hmm. we would be able to attract investors with deep enough pockets to be able to you know do or participate in our series b series c and right. beyond so that was one right. thing and the second one was we wanted um investors that had that were champions in a geography uh, so we started to look at investors in Latin, Latin America, you know, who would be mm -hmm. the type of funds that would be well regarded there in Asia Pacific, you know, in, in different parts of the world. And, and we did speak to a number of them. 
Um, I won't name names, but uh, there in one case, we also did not take their money in this particular round. Uh, but with Mubadala, we we really sort of uh, felt that there was a, a really good alignment in terms of and in, in terms of those that wish list, if you like. Um, so we made room for for uh, for them in the in the cap table, and and they've been extremely helpful with introductions, you know, with and certainly as soon as we're we're kind of ready to go go in. Um, and roll out in the in the Gulf, especially, but also in a broad, more broadly uh, in mm -hmm. the in the sort of you know Middle East MENA region. Then then they're extremely helpful in terms of uh, credibility, you know, uh, network. Uh, so I uh, you know I'm very I'm very sort of excited by having having Mubadala on our cap table. Right. As we were speaking, as we go through your journey and see your also fundraising uh, track record, so you, you check a lot of the boxes that VCs like to evaluate, kind of solid team, uh, strong uh, tec technical uh, background, uh, having really an IP and understanding a specific space, uh, a booming uh, niche that, that is growing, and then kind of going almost uh, by the book in terms of fundraising, uh, raising new rounds uh, every 12 to 18 months. And then we know uh, what started to happening uh, in the second half of uh, of 22. Uh, the UK still remains uh, at the top in terms of VC investments um, across uh, Europe, but it was still, I think, 1 billion plus the, the, the previous um year and and then we we are also seeing what is happening in in the us and uh, the vc market being very nervous and having a lot of dry powder and uh, a lot of lps uh, putting uh, and vcs raising money from lps but but now not investing uh, so much so and then all the fears about the potential recession that we are still uh, we are seeing the tech layoffs uh, in in the us from the largest uh, tech companies. So how are you able to manage uh, all of this? And uh, and at the same time, you have raised a 40 million round, which is great because from a cash perspective, you don't you simply don't have the need and the pressure to to raise a new round uh, now. So that's that's a luxury to be in. But uh, at the same time, you also want to keep the pace of growth. So you want to raise another round to go even faster. Uh, so how do you manage all, all of these uh, variables uh, in the equation as, as a founder? And uh, where is your thought process? No, I, I think, first of all, I think uh, you, you've done a, a, an amazing good summary of the constraints. Um, for, you know, when we think about our planning, you have to take the, you have to take the capital raising environment into account. You know, if you are very confident, there is a there's a you know there is basically an accommodated capital raising environment. You can take really big bold bets, maybe in acquisition, maybe in 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 setting out new territories. Um, I think when I think when you you have a situation as we have today, actually I don't think it's a bad situation because at some point there is a there needs to be alignment between value created right in an industry and how that value is reflected in, in valuations. And, and of course, thinking about the future, ten, uh, thinking very positively about the future and the potential has the tendency to inflate the here and now. And at some point, the bigger the divergence, the bigger the correction that will happen. Right. So, so I think I think it's it is just a fact of life that 
we don't investors, entrepreneurs, the market doesn't get it right, you know, at each moment in time, it gets it right eventually. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I, I, we have, what we have to think about is there is a there is basically a sense that rather than thinking about optimistically about the future, that everything would come right, all the value would get created, start to think about the evidence. And what that means is that you have to work in smaller sort of, if you like, chunks and gather the evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do that, one of the advantages of doing that is that you can also be very frugal about the way you deploy capital. Rather than think about, I'm going to do this this great sort of piece of, uh, of technical development, or I'm going to do this great country expansion, it's going to take me two years, and I will then take stock. Mm-hmm. And if it works, I'll do more. You have to do it in smaller chunks. You've got to test and learn with less, um, you know, with smaller bets, if you like. And that's been our adjustment, right? So when we think about our growth, we think about the business as having a BAU angle, a business as usual angle, which is the engine of the business. So in that, it's all about how do we get larger customers? How do we reduce Mm -hmm. the sales cycle? How do we deliver more efficiently? You know, that's really building out that engine. But then you're also making investments on top of the business as usual. And the size of the investments are definitely smaller than what we were willing to make when we closed uh, our Series A. So we were, and we did a lot of work through actual um, rollout in the US. We decided to slow that down for for two reasons. One, the um, the demand side in the US has been depressed because people aren't raising as much money as they used to. So they're building less, their projects are taking longer. The companies are running out of money. And the second is because we think this change is going to bring opportunities for acquisition. So rather than just do it organically by building in the US, right. uh, we, we see that there might be opportunities to team up with a, t- with a team and a, that has successfully built a product, built the right kind of relationships, started to build a customer base in the US, and they could then become part of our whole operation. And at this point in time, given that we were to an, to an extent lucky at raising when we did, we, you know, we have that opportunity to be um, an active partner in that kind of roll-up of, of, of great businesses that have unfortunately had, had bad timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the US, we decided not to just continue to um, invest in there to, to go big. Uh, and we decided instead to put much more attention on, on actually rolling out in Singapore, which is a smaller market. It means it's uh, it's a uh, you know it's faster it's, uh, it's faster yeah. to do business there. It's less of a of a huge bet to do it. And so we are we have continued to invest in in, in expansion, but not in the biggest market in the world. Right. Uh, in the most business friendly market in the world, yeah. uh, Singapore. Right. Uh, so so that's been how we've adapted to to that. Um, and and that's the way we see we look at the investments that that we make. We haven't stopped doing them. Yeah. But we're doing smaller ones. We're being more frugal, and we're doing this test and learn cycle, which is much more tight than yeah. than uh, you know, than if we were confident that we could actually continue to raise at uh, ever increasing valuations. Yeah, the listeners of the podcast know that I that I have a, a co-founder based in in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So I love the Southeast Asia region. We also have some guests from the region here. 
Uh, and it's incredible to see that uh, also from that perspective, it seems that uh, Southeast Asia keeps booming and raising more and more capital, uh, especially compared to the West and what we are seeing in the West. We also see some um, conservative signs coming from China that has a huge impact uh, on, on, on the region. But it seems that Southeast Asia in, is in a different, a very different trend. Uh, and it's, it's still, it keeps growing a lot uh, and will keep growing a lot in, in the next year. So we, we don't know what what will happen in in the next uh, one two years uh, and especially this year in in 23 but it seems that the vibe and the energy that we feel in southeast asia is a little bit different from what we feel in europe and in the in the us and let's add china to to the equation as well and we we also see the same in india that is also booming and, and growing like uh, like crazy that that's kind of also your thought process when you look to singapore and, and Southeast Asia as potential avenues for, for growth? Uh, very much so. I mean, look, uh, Singapore grew 3.8% last year, right? The economy as a whole. And that's pretty, that's pretty good going. And and I so I visited Singapore three times last year, and it will be the same or more this year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could see why, right? You could see that I visited in March and all, you know, all the meetings... I mean, I might as well not have visited because a lot of meetings were has to, has still have to happen remotely, even though I wasn't right. around there. I went again in June, and things opened were opening up. Uh, opening up when I went there back in November, and um, uh, you know, at the Singapore FinTech Festival, it was very much business as usual. It was like this pent up right. sort of energy just got released, and everybody's looking to do deals. Everybody's looking to to return back to business as usual. And, and so that fuels demand, right? Um, so that really felt, it felt completely different from my visits to the States where the sense was, oh, we're in a different era now, exactly. money's tight, you know, the, the IPO market has dried up. Um, basically, everybody's waiting to see who would blink in terms of investors, um, you know, putting money into companies at valuations which were much lower than, uh, than, than in the sort of go-go years of 2021. In in uh, in Southeast Asia, I didn't see that sense. I saw the sense that finally we're seeing the end of the exactly. pandemic, and we're just going to get back to really building out uh, and getting yeah. life back to normal. And we were just seeing also the, the 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 Chinese New Year sentiment, and the population was saying, "Yeah, we we expect that finally this COVID wave will go away, and we are able to to grow again." Uh, as as economy right so again that that is kind of the energy going on even in in china where where things are a little bit more uh, not so shiny as uh, in the rest of india and, and southeast asia let's say in, in the rest of the of the region uh, and of course with china having the the tension with taiwan with this uh, problem that we have now with uh, with ukraine and and russia that's that has been our concern for for a long time um but it's it's curious to see the good news about um weaver uh, is still targeting enterprises or also uh, another size of company so what, what is kind of the the icp of of weaver well I think embedded finance is a really broad uh, concept, right? right? So uh, wherever you have digital applications, 
whether that's for consumers or for businesses, there's usually at some point some money involved. If you're buying a house, you think about the house, but you also need a mortgage. But right. if you're thinking about um, financing your education, you know, you don't think about the financing first, you think about your education, but at some point you're going to have to think about financing it. And it's the same if you go on holiday, you know, the last thing you want is to think about payments, but at some point to make your holiday work, you've got to think about what currency you're going to access and, and, right. and you know, whatever, what type of holiday you want to have and how much you want to spend and all the rest of it. So embedded finance is a very, very broad concept. And we're only just starting to get our heads around how do you take financial services? How do we integrate them as a seamless part of these digital applications that help us get an education, find a house, go on holiday, right? Mm -hmm. Very, very broad. Um, that means you have to make choices. As an early stage business, you have to make choices where you want to be able to dominate. And, and Weaver's focus is very much on, on B2B SaaS. Yep. Uh, we, have a, we have sort of, if you like, in the last 24 months, when we look at the range of companies that have used us and what, which ones have been you know, clearest in the way of unlocking value, we see a fantastic story for B2B SaaS, where a B2B SaaS company can multiply their revenues two times, three times per customer mm -hmm. when they add financial services. And they can reduce churn by between 20 to 30% for customers that opt to take the financial service to the B2B SaaS business. What that means is, especially in the current environment. You think about Europe CEO of a B2B SaaS business, you've got depressed um, demand, right? Your less customers trying to reduce their costs. Yeah. So looking at their SaaS stack and deciding, do I really need all of this? So it's gonna be pressure on demand. What better way to protect your business by monetizing your existing customer base without having to spend more marketing money. In other words, your existing customer base, make, you know, give them a reason to be more loyal yeah. and be able to monetize them to the extent of two to three X of what you're already monetizing them in a downturn. Mm -hmm. So there's a really great buying story right. for, a B2, for a CEO of a B2B SaaS business for embedded finance. This is the, if they make one investment during this downturn, this should be the investment that they make. Got it. Not, not double their marketing budget or, you know, reduce their prices and so on. This is the investment they should be making. Add more value. Give you reason for your customers to stay on. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really what we're doubling down on at Weaver, right? It doesn't mean we don't support, you know, other innovators that have uh, great uses for our technology and our services to support consumers and other use cases. But proactively... Um, our ICP is very much uh, is very much the sort of B2B SaaS. When I say B2B SaaS, I mean that in a broad way, in a B2B marketplace, yeah. for example, you know, it, it, we, we would consider that uh, within the ICP as well. Right. So when you would say more kind of mid-size, uh, kind of B2B SaaS businesses were uh, scaling or already... I, I wouldn't say mid-size. Um, so we are selling to uh, early stage companies. Yeah. Um, all the way to multinationals. Um, Got the, it. The, this value story is big. Got it. Got it. So the, the SMB and also uh, an, an enterprise component uh, for for your solution uh, at the moment, right? Absolutely. 
I was also asking this because of the Southeast Asia angle, because Singapore is kind of the capital of the enterprises that serve uh, the the region, right? But then the majority of the SMBs are outside Singapore in, in the region itself. So uh, so Singapore is great as a hub to, to land and, and conquer and even to focus if, if you are serving enterprise. But then going to SaaS, SMB, there is also... Um, uh, the, the market is is much bigger outside of uh, Singapore in in the region. Right? Uh, exactly, and that's our that's our logic, right? Start with Singapore. Um, we will speak to companies large and small. Uh, I think the ones that are local present a little more limited opportunity, but they're the ones which will probably get to market first, yeah. and then build out the banking capabilities across the region, but mostly through partnership. Um, you know, and do it organically, driven by the demand that we are able to serve. Right. And it's incredible how time flies. Uh, we are coming to uh, already to the end of the of the podcast, but I still have a set of quick question and answers, um, a quick uh, question and answer format to, to go through. Um, and we were not able to discuss too much. Uh, I would love to pick your brain on kind of the fintech evolution and how do you see the future of um, of infra the infrastructure segment. But uh, we we might need to do a second uh, <laughs> show and sure. a second episode, especially after you raise uh, the B round and, uh, and and you were able to tell another chapter of uh, of your story but if you'd have the opportunity to uh, to have a coffee uh, with yourself at the beginning of weaver what advice would you offer to your younger self yeah um quick answer is forget your clever tech you know solve customer problems <laughs> love it what are you the most proud of on your journey yeah, I mean, look, there, there, in, as in any startups, there are many moments of glory, but also uh, as many moments of despair, right? But what, what I'm actually most proud is, is I think, the, is the ability to just remain calm and thoughtful at moments of crisis. And it's something I only learned as a result of being becoming an entrepreneur. I used to panic more before I was an entrepreneur. And and. Being an entrepreneur, it was a kind of do or die thing for me. And that's something I learned and actually serves me really well in, in, in life as well, not just uh, in building a business. So being being calm and thoughtful is something um, and, and at moments of crisis, something I'm, I'm actually quite proud to have achieved at a personal level. Great one. I, I love it. Uh, I think that the advantage that we get out of the entrepreneurial journey for life and how much we get to know about your ourselves is is really uh, inspiring. Worst advice ever received? Um, well, you know, there's some advice which is uh, we, we, we're all well. There's a lot of advice going around around your side hustle, right? Uh, and so there's the advice, and I have received this uh, quite a bit before I started building companies, which is keep the day job while your while your startup idea is right. still unproven. I think that's really bad advice, actually, because <laughs> if you do not do it for real you will not do it. Yeah. Now, there are exceptions to that maybe, but by and large, unless you throw yourself in that this stuff, you have to use all of your wits and all of your energy to make this work. The odds are stacked against you. You'll never quite know. You'll never quite know whether it would have worked or not. So that to me is really bad advice. If you're going to do it, do it. 
Love it. And now the resources, uh, your favorite book? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll pick one, actually. One, one that's, I think, influenced a lot of entrepreneurs is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, that, that's a business book. If you want me to, to, my favorite work of fiction is probably Graffiti's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Um, I don't know how widely it's known now as a book but it's it was hugely influ influential mm -hmm. at its time and i still think it's an amazing uh it's an amazing work of literature absolutely and favorite movie or series uh, as you prefer <laughs> well uh, at the moment i'm, I'm really uh, enjoying getting my head around uh, actually uh, a movie that was uh, that, that basically was released like 20 years ago a movie called mulholland drive by david lynch mm -hmm. um it's it's a puzzle of a movie and i think it's really great fun trying to unravel it uh, but i if i had to kind of pick my guilty pleasure um it's probably succession <laughs> got it good one and finally your favorite podcast excluding this one <laughs> <laughs> um i i uh, i quite enjoy actually harry stebbing's uh 20 minute vc i think i think it's uh, he there's there's uh, um there's a lot of kind of lessons at the same time. It's very sort of, um, it's very, it's very kind of fun to, to listen to. Um, on a more serious note, probably one of the non-business, if you like, uh, podcasts yeah. I've really enjoyed is The Coming Storm uh, by Gabriel Gatehouse at the BBC. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's, we'll it's, it's the history of QAnon and how that ultimately, um, you know, led to the storming of the of the capital, and and I think it's just fascinating about the world we live in, um, where where you know where the ingredients of post truth come from, and so I, I think it's both entertaining and as well as highly insightful. Well, then, great one! It's it's a, a new addition to to the list for sure, and uh, Alex. Thank you so much for making the time. Your journey is quite amazing, quite inspiring, and a lot of lessons learned with our conversation. And I'm sure that we could have much go, have gone much deeper, but unfortunately, we have a time frame uh, in in the podcast world, right? <laughs> Mike, th thanks for um, giving me the opportunity, and uh, really enjoyed uh, spending time with you today. Likewise. And to our community, thanks for being on that side. As you see, we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale your business. See you soon and keep scaling. Mm -hmm.